Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. He's driving too quickly, alcohol in the system, and hit the central reservation and car went into a big spin. How hard I hit my head is what actually saved my life. You were told that you might not even might not even walk again, let, let alone play yeah. football. They told my parents to prepare for me not being able to live an independent life again, you know? To me, I was sitting in the hospital bed one day, not knowing how I got there, why I got there. You ended up representing Team GB in the 2012 Paralympics, playing for the, the CP football team, which is yeah. for people with cerebral palsy and brain yeah. injuries. You put the hunger back in me and there was like, Alistair, the opportunities to go to a world championships where you would get an England cap. Lo and behold, plenty of South Korea scored on my England debut. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Football and Feelings podcast. A great episode here with Alistair Patrick Heselton. Um, I, I was so happy to, to, to speak to Alistair. He, uh, he came through the ranks at Wiccan Wanderers before getting snapped up by QPR. Um, later on in his career, he was involved in, a, in an awful car accident, which led to his best friend uh, being killed in the accident. And he was in a coma himself for two months with a brain injury. He... He didn't think he would be able to walk again. He was told he wouldn't be able to walk again, let alone play football. Then years later, after really focusing on his, his recovery, he ended up uh, representing Team Great Britain in the 2012 Paralympics with the CP football team, which is for it's for people with cerebral palsy and brain injuries. But the level is so, so high. And we spoke about his his reluctance to, to going into to that sort of football. Uh, because he wanted to to play at the level he did at before, but when he went to the training sessions, he he realised that the, the level was much higher than he anticipated at first. From that point, he's ended up going into mentoring and and public speaking to help motivate people around the country, work professionals, aspiring athletes to get the best out of them that he can. Um, again, Alistair was a lovely man. I really enjoyed this chat, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it too. Give us a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever wherever you're listening. It would really help me grow the show again. But yeah, I'll leave it there. Enjoy the episode. Cheers. Okay, I'd like to start, first of all, by thanking uh, our guest this week, Alistair Patrick Heselton. Really thankful to having you on. Uh, I'm glad we can make this happen because I'm I'm certain that our listeners are gonna are gonna benefit from hearing your story. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. How have you been keeping during lockdown? What what's it been like for you? I've seen a lot of people picking up new skills and trying out hobbies that they probably wouldn't have done. But how's it been for you? Yeah, I suppose I became a little bit of a painter decorator in that time as well. You know, <laughs> even done some landscape gardening. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly, lockdown absolutely fine because it does take me back in time to just after my injuries and things like that when I was literally locked down anyway, you know. So actually, um, I quite enjoy my own company and I've got a six-year-old that keeps me on my toes at this time. So just enjoying all of the lockdown. I'm one of these people that says, uh, never look a gift horse in the mouth, you know, and 
this has been imposed on us, like, you know, not through any of our own will, but all we can do is just roll with it. And it's one of the things that's uncontrollable for us, but we can control how we respond to it. And that's what I always try and do. That's it. Yeah. You can, you can only control what you put into things. You can't control the output. I love that. But have you learned anything, anything about yourself during lockdown? Have you, is your patience not as high as you thought it might have been? And how's that been? No, I I suppose that you just become far more um, open to scrutinizing things, you know, because you're, Obviously, if you're a perfectionist or you've got VDI on things, then you'll be having more time just to like, get consumed in your own thought, you know. But I do try and just keep my mind active, keep moving, body moving as well, like, you know, as much as possible. But at the same time, I do actually enjoy the rest and the relaxation, you know. So it's, I just try and keep things balanced as much as I can. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. It sounds like you found the, the positives in that situation. Yeah. There is, there's an awful lot I wanted to speak to you about today. Um, Maybe I think it's best probably to start with your career in football before you had your accident, which we'll come on to. You played for Wickham Wanderers as a youth player before getting snapped up by QPR. Yeah, um, when you reflect on that sort of time period, what um, what stands out for you in, in that era of your life, or who or who was Alistair at that point? Yeah, because I remember I was always, I'd been in August birthday, I was always the sort of youngest in my school year and things like that. And I was just like, you know, a very young, focused boy that just wanted to be a footballer. For me, that was what it was. And it was always a little bit difficult because I had parents that were both academics, you know, and so I saw me and my siblings to a private school, so we wanted a private education. And they wanted me to go into the family law firm afterwards, like, you know, so I was always fighting that battle. But, Football was just my love and something I just wanted to do so much. And had a great time at Wickham Wonders, you know, as a young schoolboy there. And QPR came in and for me, that was, oh yeah, had to happen because bigger side, closer to where you live. And like, you know, at the time, they still had all the bells and whistles with QPR as well. So it was like, you know, just a real, I was just so enthusiastic for it and couldn't wait for it to happen. And it did. And like, you know, my initial, um, start there was fantastic as well scoring goals almost at will maybe my first season there and I was just enjoying enjoying football enjoying life at the time which was great do you remember your first day arriving at, at QPR do you know what I do because I had um, a lot of friends there that like played for me and played with me at the, in the borough side the county side and like, you know, there's really the introduction, boys, I'm joining you this year, it's going to be good. We're already thinking about who's going to be playing where. Then I always remember turning up and I turned up back for a pre-season, like, you know, and this was leaving as a school, leaving um, Wickham Wonders as a schoolboy, but then you're going into that YTS scholarship environment straight in a QPR and everyone else, like, everyone seemed bigger than me, they'd all um, got their maturity um, growth spurts before me and got there and day one it was just pre-season and there's me thinking hey, I'm going to be loving pre-season this is first one and this is turning into Mo Farah so we're just <laughs> we're, we're just being, having our legs run off us but no it was great and then our first game we had um, the pre-season friendly was against Barnet funny enough it was an under 19 game and I had to join there as a young under 17 and under 19 game it's always Tricky when you, you don't start, you're not in the first 11 that goes out on the pitch and you're thinking, hang on, what, what does this mean for you? you know? And then and we were paying three thirds at the time, I remember it, um, came on in the second third and who scores a header for a 1-0 win? And it was <laughs> me, so and I think that was 
the sort of like platform and you know when you feel some things are just meant to be like you know it just couldn't have gone any better and yeah and that's how it started and that was almost the introduction you know the first game of the season was against Charlton scored the second in a 2-1 win that day as well so it was that was just good times and a very exciting thing you know mm, of course yeah was this were you confident in this route into football then? Was this this was going to be your life going forward? Because I know you made the leap in and out of professional football after yeah. that due to some injuries that you had. Uh, yeah. And you ended up, ended up committing some of your time to, to studying, right? But how 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 did you manage that sort of a, that fluctuation there? Well, for me, it's the funniest thing. It's because your dreams to be a footballer. And for me, I was going to be a footballer no matter what. And even when I was there as a professional... You um you sometimes lose sight of like you know I'm here let me enjoy you're just you're just still on that treadmill because football's certainly a life which it's a never ending it's relentless like once you're in it because it's a journey that is never ending you're always striving even if you're playing in the Premiership you're then striving to try and win a Prem you win a Prem well we want to get try and win something in Europe we win something in Europe but on the end of the season it's World Cup yeah I've got to try and make it for the national side and you're it's a constant treadmill you know and. I was very much on that and it's very hard at times to actually sit back and take stock of what you've done, what you've achieved, just be happy and have your sort of like downtime because as soon as one season ends, okay, you might actually have a week off, but a lot of the guys were still trying to stay fit ahead of pre-season, you know, and it's it's exhausting sort of. What was the uh, the transition like, like away from QPR? Then was that something that you uh, you welcomed with open arms, or was it uh, quite a difficult thing to accept at the time? Um, for me, for all of us at the time, because for a lot of us, um, moving away from QPR that was imposed on us again. The club went into administration when the first team got relegation from mm. Div One to Div Two, lost so much money and. Basically, it was administrators were telling us that we're not getting new contracts. And you think, hang on, surely it's a manager that tells you that, not an administrator, you know? But then clubs just couldn't afford to pay everyone. And a lot of us were very uncertain. But luckily for me, Ian Dowry, he had um, got the move up to Oldham Athletic and got me straight up on loan there. I was under Tony Philiskirk, which for me was, wow, what a great manager to have playing with, um, playing under um, Tony and both David Cross as well. He was the reserves manager. And no playing there, wow, again, score, scoring on a debut, which was fantastic for the under, their under-19s at the time, which was good. And playing in the resis a lot. And so much fun. And I was very, very enthused to be there because it was almost out of my comfort zone. Left family behind in London, living up in, it was Royton, up in Oldham. And, you know, living with a new family. And I was just thinking, okay, this is a whole new independence, time for me to grow. And... I did, and I was really loving it there, you know, and I wasn't looking back. And this is, I was just like, okay, well, I'm a footballer here now, still a footballer, just somewhere else, you know? Mm. Yeah, comfort zone is, is a key phrase you use there. Is that a yeah. barrier that you were, you were quite happy to break? Because a lot of people, that comfort zone is, that's so restricting almost, like yeah. it's very hard for them to get out of that. But eventually you ended up playing in like the Dutch first division. Yeah. Um, so that's an, that's another new challenge. It sounds like yeah. you were, you obviously in hindsight, it sounds like you breezed into these challenges. But I'm sure at the time it wasn't quite quite as simple as that. No, I think um, certainly that word comfort zone 
it's very often that's a word that we don't we don't actually realize we're in our comfort zone because that's when we're in autopilot we just do things and we don't actually have to think about them we don't leave them because why on the boat i don't want to go into uncertainty because i think this way is the best and for me going to oh no i didn't think at the time i didn't think oh i've left my comfort zone i have to grow but subconsciously I matured because I had to be more independent. I had to forge better um, friendships with people. And that was just a byproduct of moving away from home. You know, you just, it's almost like jumping in the swimming pool with our armbands. I'm not the best swimmer, but if you tell me, listen, I've got to make it to shore, I'm, I'm going to get there, you know? <laughs> so, and, it, and it's just like that. So again, on the flip side, my time in Holland, that wasn't so good for me. In terms of me as a person, I didn't really integrate because one didn't want to learn the language didn't want to like you know spend most of my time living out of a hotel for four or five months because um, I didn't want to actually say if I've got this property here I'm bound to it I was coming home regularly I say home well your home's in Holland it should have been in Holland however and my home was very much in England like you know and that's just for me like I've got so many friends not just in football but in other walks of life that have like moved to um, relocate in America and all around the world, and I so often say to them, do you know what, I can do that life. You know, I tried it going to Holland, it's just not for me. I just love it here for whatever reason. Yeah, that, that's interesting, yeah. I think quite often you you hear about the those glory stories of, of English yeah. players moving abroad and, and it just working out, and then all the pundits are saying, I don't understand why more English players aren't doing that. But it, but it is so, so, so difficult for a lot of people. So that's that's quite interesting to hear, actually, how you... You were being comfortable in England, but did you just feel like you played? You needed that comfort to play your best football, maybe? Yeah, because at the same time, um, after being out in Holland, I was like, no, this isn't me. Um, the agent then said, Alison, well, why don't you try? Um, um, it was FC Giel in Belgium. So and I was born in Belgium, funny enough. And oh. you arrived there, and I'm just there, and the whole pace of the country, the place where almost felt completely isolated and that's something that it scared me to be perfectly honest because you're looking you can stand in the middle of a street like where you're meant to live you look up and down you don't see anything for miles and you're thinking nah this <laughs> what happens if um, like you know the dishwasher packs up or the, the washing machine goes what am I going to do <laughs> so so you know for me that was uh, not so good that, that really daunted me and luckily for me at the time it was when Nationwide had taken over the conference so I came back and signed for Bishop Stortford and the time frame in the conference itself. And again, I actually just felt much happier um, doing that. And one thing my parents have always said to me, they said, I said, only play football if it's going to make you happy because if you're doing something, why are you doing it? Is it just to earn money? But then you're sacrificing your happiness at the other end of it. What's it worth? You know. So for me, I was happier to just play semi-pro in England with Bishop Stortford whilst working as a quantity spare in the West End. Mm. And Bishop Stortford, you're close to Stansted if you ever wanted to make the trip to Holland as well. Um, well thank you, this is, that's what we, I was always flying from um, Stansted, funnily enough. So. <laughs> I've, uh, <laughs> in my time doing this podcast, I've spoken to, yeah. to, uh, to uh, several players and one thing that I've really admired about them is, their, is that some of them have had the, the ability and the opportunity mm. to play in a professional division. Um, whether that is abroad or even in England, but some of them have made that conscious decision not to do that just because, like you said, 
they're they're not happy playing at that level sometimes they're just they're not enjoying their football it feels like it's taken the fun out of it it turns it into more of a job um so that's something that that is, is really nice to hear to hear you say and something that i imagine from a fan's perspective you know what football fans are like they're they're a bit yeah. stubborn i imagine it's um they'll be thinking no nah, don't do that go play pro but um, it's really nice to see that you you adjusted to that to that quite well yeah i think that's one of the things people don't always understand. They think, oh, why is this football alone and they get paid enough? And listen, money isn't everything, okay? Because I always remember it would be on um, Christmas days where we would have to be in crack of dawn. And when when you're young and you're in on Christmas day, you're cleaning someone else's boots and it's freezing cold. You're talking to me you're like, do you know what, mate? What are we doing? I'd be like, do you know what? We could just do a nice little office job. You get a company mobile phone, company car, and just wear a suit and walk around. <laughs> and so you have those jokes, but then it's only when you look back on it, you think, no, that football life that we had wouldn't change it for anything, you know? Mm. But sometimes you need that older head put on the younger shoulders. But 100%, I would I'd put my happiness above football and above anything else. So the day. Like, you know, it stops making me happy as David Bentley, the great um, ex-Arsenal player, did. He yeah. just got up one day. And I used to play against him, play with against him so much. And when I heard him say that, you think, well, wow, he was flying high at Arsenal. And, he, like, you know, it was always tipped to be the next big thing. And when that comes from him, you think, well, how many more are like that? You know, how many is he representing? Because he, he was a top, top player. Mm. Yeah. At, at what point then in uh, in your career did you decide to broaden your horizon slightly and start uh, studying in quantities of earn? At what point did you make that decision? That was almost right from the very beginning. Like I said, having academic parents um, and signing with QPR, so we did we had access to a private education. We all um, we go to Hammersmith and West London College, and we get private tuition one day a week as well. And as part of your academy, you'd have to like you know choose. A-levels, obviously everyone would do sports science. My parents, they weren't having that, they were to do some proper stuff, so I did <laughs> a GMVQ in business studies and an AS level in politics at the time and came away with those. And my dad says, Alistair, do you know what, in life, the way things go, if you plan for something, like, you're probably never going to need it. So sods law will mean, yeah, you get this education, you never need it, and that's a good thing. However, if you do need it, then it's there for you. And it was only... After my knee injury, like I put older athletic and everything else, new management shift in QPR, talk with the administrators and everything else. I just thought, well, wow, do you know what? Um, okay, I've got two options. I can just go on this treadmill that every other young footballer at this sort of time is going to be doing, which is uh, trying to go off to trials at every other club, and then you just you become a number. Or I can actually go and do a lot more, like you know, and just be out there and be happy in what I do. So I thought they were just go for that and mm. I did quantities then um, that was partly my mum's fault she just um, told me to go to the local connections office and said just to do some research on some stuff and well, okay just saw an opportunity and I took it <laughs> you know mm. that was that great stuff I, I've heard uh, I was watching actually last last chance you on Netflix uh, last night it's an American uh, American football like college sports documentary uh, and a few of the, the lads there are said they were saying they they don't have a plan B and they don't want to have a plan B apart from making it in the NFL. And I mean, I was watching that thinking. Part of me is thinking, great that they're so committed to to getting that plan A, but 
I mean, the statistics don't lie. Not every player makes it. Um, it's it's so important to, to have that plan B. And I'm sure from your perspective, you're glad that you, you always had that there, almost like a, a safety barrier to fall back on. Yeah, no, definitely. Because you sometimes think, how conducive is it to have a plan B when you're actually trying to be like, you know, tunnel vision to get my goal, you know? Mm. So and I think it's the way it's sometimes delivered because having worked um, with the Dame Kelly Homes Trust, um, I, I mentor a lot of young footballers on my future today and this a lot of the time it's when they're in, coming up to crunch time with what decisions are they going to make and we try and show them that they have got transferable skills so we're not saying oh yeah you have to have this plan B what we're saying is your plan A can actually help you go somewhere else if you need to you know so I just try to show them that they've got that and it's funny because it was only whilst following a plan B and then had the opportunity to go and play in Holland and I, you know, put that on hold again to take up plan A and then mm. plan A there and home not for me. So went back to plan B again. Like, you know, so it's, you can nothing is set in stone. You know, we just have to be as adaptable as we can, as we, even this time shows us right now. Yeah, adaptability is definitely key. Absolutely. Um, before we touch on the mentoring work that, that you're doing now, I did want to touch on the, the accident that you were involved in. Um, I sort of I don't want to do this do this an injustice really. Would would you mind sort of explaining explaining what happened? I don't want I want to make sure I don't get any of the details wrong. Yeah, well for me it was a game changer because my best friend Simon Patterson, the late Simon Patterson, um, ex Watford Wickham Wanderers also, um, they had a tragic car crash back in September the tenth, two thousand and six. Now, and he was driving too quickly, alcohol in the system and hit the central reservation and car went into a big spin at very high speed. And there's three of us in the car as well, my friend, another good friend of ours, Faisal, and three of us were thrown from the car. Uh, me, I um, don't know if I landed on my head first of all, however, my head took um, significant trauma. Um, so I had a compound depressed fracture skull, um, but it was the actual, how hard I hit my head is what actually saved my life because I cracked my head right open and um, while um, I was having brain hemorrhages because heads open, it let all the blood out. So it meant that no pressure built up. And that's what allowed them to get me to hospital um, with enough oxygen to the brain on time. And I think also I have to say the ambulance service deserve a massive shout out because it, their response time was just so awesome in getting to me that quickly. And also, you never know who's listening to these things, but the actual accident was reported by a security guard that was watching the, um, like, you know, the boatway cameras and things like that. It was him that um, reported it at the time because I don't know if there was any cars around, but big thanks to him for seeing that and logging that so quickly. So another unsung hero. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So, so you came out of that accident uh, hmm. You were in, were in a coma for two months. Am I right in saying yeah. that? Yeah, 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 just over that. Yeah. Okay. So, and and you were told you were told that you might not even might not even walk again. Let let alone play yeah. football. Yeah. Well, um, see, this is what the funniest thing is being in that coma. You're just oblivious to it. It's your family. They're the ones that are receiving all the things. They're going through the real hard times, I call it. And um, right down to my younger brother. Um, he one of my younger brothers. He was taking it upon himself to actually try and come up with a language that we would be able to use for me because they were told I might not be able to talk again, wouldn't be able to communicate. And they said walking was going to be a struggle. They told my parents to 
prepare for me not being able to live an independent life again, you know? So, um, yeah, that's what my family were doing. And it was, it was real, yeah, touch and go time for them, you know? And I do remember waking and then, yeah, being told, Alistair, walking's going to be very difficult if at all you can. Obviously, I never thought like that because I always used to remember my dad, he used to, um, I said, remember, he'd put my um, bed control on the end of the bed by my feet and he'd always be telling me, like, to try and kick it. At the time, he was telling me that, not knowing if I can hear him or, like, you know, understand what he's saying. But then it got to a stage when I was becoming a bit more lucid where I would just try and flick at it. So you knew I had some movement in my legs, but how coordinated it was going to be, was what we'd have to just wait and see, you know? And then I remember putting weight on your legs the first time and it seemed like, bam, you're nice, like, you know, the first time and you're yeah. wobbling away. And that for me was a good thing because he just meant to me, well, I couldn't do it yet. That's like so many things in life. You know, everything we do for the first time, can't always do it yet, you know. So I was just prepared for the challenge. Yeah. So I'm sure the, the road to better health was, was long and mm -hmm. torturous for you. But... Did you eventually come to terms with the accident? Because understandably, a lot of people might not have. They, they would have just been mm. so frustrated and that could have actually hindered their progress uh, in reaching a better health. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question and a great way to put it because in terms of um, coming to terms with it, I say, yes, I have um, learned to cope, okay? And because I, I even still to this day think I'm my best friend and I might be doing something now, I'd be like, oh, me and Simon, yeah, we'd have done this or we'd have laughed at that, like, you know, that sort of stuff. So it's something that I don't think will ever leave me, but, or you will, leave, will ever leave anyone, but you do learn how to manage it and come to terms with it. I think my doctor had actually put into great perspective for me quite early on as I was coming around, then he was, Alistair, um, you've got about five years. When I just started walking, he was like, Alistair, you've got about five years where you'll keep getting better for about five years, but then after that, that's roughly where you're going to just see yourself stay. And that, that scared me a bit because I thought, well, wow, I've got five years to do, to really, because if that, they're going to stop the time in five years, I have to be able to, like, you know, do backflips or whatever, you know? So, and that, that just led to me, like, just being even more relentless and trying to walk and talk and... Talking for me was one of the things because I had massive facial paralysis where the whole left side of my face had completely dropped and I'd have to go and see my speech therapist. And that was probably the most demoralizing when you couldn't even like, you know, power, you couldn't say your words properly. And it's only when I tried to make a phone call one day and the woman on the other end of the phone said, talk properly, I can't understand you. And uh, that, yeah, that, that, that hit me a bit hard. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna have to, something's got to change. And well, I'm not about to have an argument with this woman over the phone about it, but yeah, I just like, you know, have to try even harder than my speech therapy. And that's what I did. Yeah, that shows the the work that you're willing to put in. There's a there's obviously yeah. a natural level of determination there that that you had before the accident and after the accident. Um, you're also told that you had is it retrograde amnesia? Yeah, that's yeah. something that that I I don't really understand and. Again, I don't want to do it an injustice, but how did yeah. that affect your day to day? What, what did that mean? <laughs> that's, that's something that I don't really understand myself. <laughs> but, um, basically, well, what it was from the day of the accident and about the year before it, um, I don't know anything. So, if when you think about my first thoughts, um, to me, I was sitting in the hospital bed one day, not knowing how I got there, why I got there. Um, it wasn't even like you know, it was the middle of the night, so I 
don't remember anything the whole year before it. So you know, I was always trying to piece together these things. And but it's only when um, I can't recall things. Someone would have to try and point me and say, oh, do you remember when that had happened? And then, hmm, maybe I do. But if you were to ask me, hey, what happened then? It's not happening. So mm. I can't, the recall side of my brain has actually gone. But I might be able to recognize something where someone will say something. Like, oh, yeah, now you say that. I get it. So it's, um, but on a day-to-day, I have goldfish memory. So like, I wouldn't have a clue what was going on. We could be having a conversation right now. Someone would ask me a question. And then I'll look at you and say, well, when did you get here? Like, well, what's going on? Like, you know, and yeah, that, that, that was a real struggle for me, actually, because I always remember even when I was let home, I was then missing so many, like, you know, medical appointments. Because my parents were trying to let me have some independence where they'd be like, no, you can take charge of your appointments. No, <laughs> I should be somewhere else. And I'm just sitting at home, like, you know, not knowing what, what I should be doing, not that focused. So I had to then end up writing more notes post-its were stuck all around my house and these kind of things and put plans in place so I could like you know hang on to things store them yeah is that something that that did improve over time or is that something that that still affects you now no um memory now is so much better like mm-hmm. but it's so funny how um how we say how the mind works and things like that because even though the big bulk of my memory had actually gone like you know I was in the hospital one day and I thought my parents had given me a phone card and I, I, I'd always been saying to them, listen, I want to come home. They're saying, no, Alistair, you're in the best place for you right now. You're rigged up to all these machines. And, and I got a phone card. They said, if you ever need to call us, like, I'm just give us a call. Picked up the phone. I thought, I'm not calling my parents. I'm calling my grandma. And I called my grandma because she's never said no to me before. So I was like, grandma, you've got to get me out of here. And she's like, I was like, I can't. And, but then, so then she rang my parents and like, said, oh, Alison was calling, he's a bit distressed. My, my first thing my parents said is, how does he remember your number? Like, you know, like, <laughs> my dad's like, I don't even know your number. So, and that, that was a funny thing. Coming home, and I got back home, went out. First thing, went to a cash point and put my PIN number straight in like that. And that's how do you remember that? And my memory on certain things was just completely random where I could just nail it. My mom's like, Alistair, how do you actually remember that? I didn't remember this, you know. So your brain does funny things. Yeah, yeah, that, that's unreal. Wow. Um a, a jumping forward of a few years, you ended up representing Team GB in the twenty twelve Paralympics playing for the the C P football team, which is yeah. cere- people with cerebral palsy and brain yeah. injuries. How did that opportunity present itself? How did how did you get involved in that? And again, when you, we say we're a um, small world or things are meant to be, it just so happened um, there was a doctor, Richard Wheeler, who was the cerebral palsy um, England doctor. However, um, earlier on in his career, he had been the Watford club doctor and he knew my friend Simon had paid for Watford. And obviously at the time of Simon's death and everything, he knew that he'd been with an ex-QPR footballer. And he put two and two together thinking, because he knew of the brain injury, that like, you know, well, technically he would be able to play in this side. And he actually relayed that to the um, management and um, Jeff Davis, the performance director at the FA, who then reached out to me through the PFA. And then I thought, well, okay, well, at first I was like, no, guys, I've got new life now. I don't play football anymore. I don't even know what it is, this, this um, disability football. They told me a bit more about it. Um, I still couldn't identify with it because my whole recovery um, had been geared around not being called disabled or a paralympian at all. I wanted to be completely 
I wanted to be the old Alistair again, you know, and I researched a bit about it, went on the website, and it wasn't um, portrayed in the best like disability footballers because the poster of it was just an amputee playing football, and I thought, no, I can't identify with that because that's not me, so I think they've got the wrong man. I said, no, I don't want to do it. Then they kept on at me, thought, well, they seem to be wanting to invest so much time in talking to me, at least the worst thing I can do is just turn away the opportunity so we don't see what it's about. I remember going to an England camp um, and playing. Now I was sort of trying to play very much on almost like muscle memory, like, you know, just remember what a footballer should do and these kind of things. Although first I felt like a tennis player, like, you know, I just did a quick sprint and I thought, well, hang on, where should I even be standing? Like, you know, everything, my orientation didn't seem the way it was. I felt like a tennis player playing on the football pitch, you know, <laughs> but then, but one thing that I didn't have on my side was I was actually, in terms of physical fitness, I've been in the gym a lot, so I'd really bulked out and I was in great shape, but um, just not fine-tuned for football, so to speak. So, but it put the hunger back in me and there was like, Alistair, the opportunities to go to a world championships where you would get an England cap and things like that. And I thought, oh, wow, this is a bit amazing. And then managed to get put with the Jaguar Academy of Sport as a rising star, which is 50 young athletes and get put on the program and receive mentoring from like, you know, top stars. Myself, I was lucky enough to be mentored by Dame Kelly Holmes, Denise Lewis, Jessica Ennis Hill, Cersei Breakgrave. So it was, uh, and David Beckham. Wasn't going to drop him, but he was also in there. <laughs> You've got so, to drop him. <laughs> yeah, so, um, and I thought, well, wow, do you know what? This opportunity is great. Let me just, like, you know, go to the World Champs, but just try and give it my very best. And lo and behold, playing against South Korea scored on my England debut. And then I thought, well, yeah, and like, you know, all of a sudden, memories come flooding back, the whole camaraderie as you score, everyone's jumping on you. Everything's buzzing again. Yeah, you're feeling the heartbeat going. Yeah, this is this is good. How, how big, how far could I go? That was it for me, you know? Yeah. What was the the training regimes and like pre-game preparations like for for the CP teams? I, I presume it's very similar to like your standard eleven aside, but maybe slightly tailored in in places. No, see, no, it's very interesting you say that because when I first got there, that's one thing I realised is it wasn't now, and even at an elite level, it was a case of it seemed as though too many special exceptions were given. No, we won't start tackling training because there's a high chance of it, or an increased chance of injuries in cerebral palsy. We don't have to train every day or you have to manage your body a bit more. However, the philosophy I brought from the next profession was no guys, we train every day and we train as we play. So how can you not slide tackling training but you'd be expected to slide tackling in the match? Because you have to practice these things that you do. Otherwise you'd never know how to do them. And I kind of really I was really passionate about driving that into the side and it did and I think Certainly, the way I was looking after my body as well, it kind of made more of the players aspire to be like that as well. So they could go away from the England camp, train away as hard as they can, and come back look at what I'm doing now and this and that. And that's um, if that's the one thing that I gave to the side, then I'm really glad it was was that experience that I've had, like you know, from professional football and mainstream football. And slowly, England, the buzz because it was wasn't very well. Um, Receive or heard of within the country anyway, the disability and certainly the CP game. Um, over time, it's the popularity has increased, and like you know, that it is the way now to be an elite level player. You do actually don't just 
you're not just there because like you know it's an afterthought you're here because you're the best and when you're the best well you don't want to be the best in England you want to be the best in the world and, you know so that's why we train as hard as we can it's more like that now because some of the training um, schedules we're given from the sports um, psychologists, our sports therapists and everything else were, yeah, like, you know, six days a week and we're, we're really hammering away, which is all this stuff. The hardest thing was just that you have to do it in your own time. Like, you know, a lot of those days and you, um, your heart rate and everything gets logged and tracked back by them because we'd always log in all our sessions and everything and they'd see who was hiding away. So you just have to be mm. personally responsible. Of course, yeah. What was your, where was your headspace when you started playing again? Obviously, your the journey that you've been on prior to that, you didn't think you would be playing football. You're managing to do it again. Are you full of confidence and motivation, or, or is it taking you quite a long time to to find your rhythm again with the ball at your feet? Oh, I was a hundred percent motivated. Like you know, once I saw opportunities like you know, going going all out. Otherwise, what's the point? You know, so. Mm training well as hard as can hard as I could and um, luckily for me as well I um, had a um, very supportive wife at the time of making sure my meals were always prepared because I'd be um had a business in um, car design for like footballers and things like that where we do that during the day and then have to make sure I get my session in and then come home whatever time but my meals were prepared and things like that so we were ships in the, in the night for like at least two years we either you saw each other while I was on that um, cycle for London and everything you know and just Gave everything that I could. Yeah, of course. You you mentioned uh, earlier that you that was your was that your first experience of mentoring when you were when you were uh, given those like athletes to, to mentor you. Yes, so I was mentored um, by like I say these great athletes, and it's only on reflection well no, I've been mentored by so many more before. However, I just never realised it at the time. You know, it's only when it was. Um, captioned like that and yeah having those athletes around because I was still unsure about am I going to really go in for this Paralympic football or am I just better off doing what I'm doing as a family man and having my career elsewhere but then when I was hearing from all of their experiences and what things they had to do and the real buzz was how hard they trained because I thought yeah do you know what I know what it's like to be there and you're giving it everything and then you see it in competition at the end of it I thought yeah it really really helped Mm, yeah so then eventually you've gone into mentoring yourself and public speaking as well how did that opportunity come around and again that was um in part through um dame kelly holmes herself because she'd been helping me so much and she had said alice said you know with your own journey and everything that you've experienced you'd be able to give back and would you like to do it for my trust and that's where i started off with her trust and also with uh sporting champions which was a sport england initiative and was doing that and I really actually enjoyed doing it. The main thing was like being able to give back and I could see that like you know the smiles that you put on people's face and like you know just the experiences that you share and the influence it has on them. And I thought, well you know what, why am I working here and then like stopping that to go and do this and then going back just going there to do that again. I thought well you know what let me stop working there and I'm just gonna go full on into this mentoring and like you know, speaking, trying to make a change for people's lives and that's what I've done and that's where I am today. I love it. Amazing. So you're working with a wide variety of people from work professionals, aspiring athletes and and uh, and students as well. But is there, have you found there's like common threads with uh, through all these people that you're working with? Is there something that comes up quite often that maybe people either struggle with or that you really need to try and, and, and instill into them? 
Yeah, no, um, I know buzz, there are always these buzzwords, like, you know, I think resilience for a little while now has been a real buzzword. Everyone's, sometimes I don't actually think it's resilience so much as what people need. I think people need to actually find that dream because when you've got that, when you know there's something that you want, resilience doesn't come into it because you're just getting what you want and you're running through all these barriers, not even realising you're breaking things down because you're just getting what you want, you know. So I think it's almost dream catching is what we need to actually focus on having the dream, being able to actually know, know what you want, look, look outside of the bubble, you know? But when I saw that question about like, you know, the theme, the biggest thing that surprised me is how um, regional, like a lot of issues do tend to be regionalized where you could actually tell, oh, actually that part of the country, well, actually they're very different to that part. Like, you know, you often you're going through in your head, well, why, why are they so different? Because that trend is actually similar to that place over there and even though they're two completely different places they've got that same trend and why is that so no it's just very interesting like you know the, again the young people that i get to meet and i've met some very and been influenced by people that i've met as well you know, it makes me very grateful for everything that i've experienced and got you know done mm. has there, has anything surprised you about working with with these young people yes um in the young people they they give themselves a hard time like you know because it's only when you let a young person speak and then you're hearing all the things that they're saying you're thinking hang on you've got quite a story don't don't think you're like you know any less and sometimes i've been like you know greeted by young people like, wow yeah hey, no, you know i'm just a guy just from a normal school like you guys were you know all it was i just wanted to try that a bit harder than everybody else and it's the, the never say no attitude you know and no like, you know, i'm always pleasantly surprised i think that's the best thing to, to me mm -hmm. yeah and when you are mentoring people or, or doing these speaking appearances for you is there is there always like one set goal or is that uh is that does, is that a spectrum does that change depending on who you're speaking to and how they're how they're bouncing off of you as well. Do you notice things that people probably, that their ears pop up and you want to focus on that for the rest of the session? Or? Yeah, I think when, if it's just speaking, I always like, you know, need to get the brief. And I always just try and be completely open and honest and I'll give people like, you know, my story and what it meant to me and the experiences that I've had and how that may affect someone else going through, not necessarily the same tough time, but a similar sort of tough time or a tough time and but then when i go like you know putting on the workshops for various people it's the team building stuff and resilient things no I just, I just love that because you know within a day you can see someone go from being timid to being the life and soul of the uh the group which is so good to see and that for me is one of the reasons i just keep doing it yeah yeah, one of the episodes I've done here was speaking to a to a mentoring expert, um, Herman Stewart, who I've been connected to for a while. He found that in the other work that he's done, speaking to a lot of people on the other side of the pond in the states, he found that in in the UK especially, we're so we we hate saying that we're good at stuff. We we we're like if we if we're like the best in our field uh, out of a group of people, we hate saying that. Whereas in America, it's it's polar opposite. If you want to get to the top, you have to to let everyone know that that you are you are the top dog. Is that something that that you found that there's a a bit of a bit of coyness, a bit of shyness around people noticing the ability that, that they have, have actually got? Yeah, but, and I don't mean to. Um sound a bit rude when i say this yeah but it's the wrong people 
that tend to be like that. Mm. So it's the ones that are skilled and qualified that tend to not blow their own trumpet. However, there'll be someone with no qualification and like, you know, no real um, sense of what they're actually doing, but they'll say they're the best things since sliced bread. And I've never really understood that. And the biggest problem I find is we seem to be scared to challenge at times. And so why isn't that, why isn't that challenge? Because if they've got enough about them, they'll be able to counter the argument. But so often it's not like one of the things, I hope I don't offend you by this, but it's YouTubers at the moment annoying me because I'm not a YouTuber don't don't you worry I don't put myself in that category (laughs) thank you you'll get someone that will sit on YouTube and they'll then just go off on one they'll they'll quote stats and things like that not have any idea what it is they're actually talking about however it's then believed by people why would you because it looked professional because they did it on YouTube and they they had a room and their camera was on a tripod and you're thinking come on now you know let's not always just get sucked into um, the presentations let's look for content you know yeah yeah and having met some of those people that (laughs) it's so it's so strange when you see people that are so different when they're on camera like that, that that's why I've, i really struggle to buy into a lot of a lot of youtubers and content creators because i, I don't know i can just see through the, the nonsense that they're, that they're chatting normally um alistair we've we've spoken about a lot of stuff uh in this episode i always like to round off with four sort of quick fire-ish questions which are sort of reflective um if, if you're ready for those let's go yeah uh, what makes you happiest in life what makes me happiest in life right now is my family. You know, seeing the smile on my son's face and my wife and happy. Like, you know, that for me at the minute is, oh, it makes me, yeah, happy. I don't, what else do I need? Like, yeah. And I'm seeing my family at the weekend as well for my birthday. And yeah, don't need more than that. Amazing. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, what makes you sad? What makes me sad? Well, do you know what the world at the moment um the way things are going and making me a little bit sad. Like, you know, because we very rarely seem to be pulling in the same direction. And by that, I mean, whether it's the government, are they pulling with their public or are they just setting rules for us to follow? Like, you know, and it's, it's a little bit tricky because we have, like, you know, people are being exploited and it's not great. Yeah, quite right. Um, how would you like to be remembered? Do you know what, just as a guy that always tried his best, whatever it was i tried my best Mm -hmm. and finally the last question of the day what about yourself are you most proud of (laughs) (laughs) being inducted in the national football museum hall of fame that that was that that, that, yeah that's when if i like you know be a bit selfish i'll say yeah that's one thing um yeah, I'm proud of. Mum, yeah. I made it. <laughs> <laughs> that is top draw. What what an accolade! Wow, I need to up yeah. my game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was alongside um same induction alongside Stephen Gerrard as well, 2017. So that for me, and I'm wow. a Liverpool fan. So yeah, amazing. I mean, I've never I've never seen you both in the same room. So you know. yeah no uh, no you look for us in the same telephone box that's where we just quickly get changed (laughs) uh alistair it's been amazing having you on um now before before we round this off um the floor is yours what do you want to tell people about if there's any upcoming projects or any social media you want them to to look towards the floor is yours um well you know you can find me on twitter although i haven't been so active on there at the moment through lockdown because not much is changing you know all i can say guys one thing just keep thinking patience we don't know how long this waiting game is going to carry on for just stay patient and just try and find something that can make you happy you know, wherever it is 
Alistair, thank you. thank you again. And thank you to listening to the Football and Feelings podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.